0: Our text this morning is 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 18 and following. This month, in fact this week, we observe the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion and made it publicly acceptable for women to end their pregnancies with as little guilt as possible. The Christian community has come to the battle for life in a remarkable way, and we have made tremendous inroads. Mark Crutcher, in his newsletter for his organization, Life Dynamics, points out that it is not unlikely that we would feel guilty about a low success rate. I mean, after all, Abortion is still very much with us and Planned Parenthood continues to be funded with federal dollars despite numerous attempts to defund it. Yes, Planned Parenthood says the funds go to pay for women's health screenings and the like, but the truth of the matter is that for every dollar, Planned Parenthood does not have to pay for those screenings is a dollar of their own money that they can divert to abortions. So indirectly, through government funding, we're still aiding them in their abortive practices. And make no mistake about it, Planned Parenthood is the number one provider of abortions in our country. Let me give you some figures for just 2011. The number of abortions, this is just Planned Parenthood now. The number of abortions in 2011 by Planned Parenthood, both medical and surgical, 329,445. Just the one organization. That's three times the population of Flint. It is one half the population of Detroit that have been aborted. The total number of abortions per week, again, Planned Parenthood, 6,335 per week. Adoption referrals for the whole of 2011, 841. The ratio of adoption to abortion, one adoption referral per 392. Abortions. Hello, does that tell you where the emphasis is in Planned Parenthood? One referral for adoption to every 392 abortions. And we go, oh my, are we making any progress? Well, despite these horrendous numbers, Mark Crutcher in his article lists a number of ways in which we have made some inroads. Number one, since 1992 to the present, abortion clinics in the United States have decreased from 2100 to 600. From 2100 to 600. Secondly, for the first time in a long time, more Americans declare themselves to be pro-life rather than pro-abortion. Thirdly, the right to life of the unborn is still being discussed. It's still being debated instead of being swept under the carpet. That's also a good thing. They've been trying to hush us since 1975 and we're still talking about it. Number four, crisis pregnancy centers continue to exist. They continue to grow in number despite attempts by organizations like NARAL and others to close them. God is preserving these centers and allowing more to be opened. And number five, and I think this is a good one, children with deformities. Down syndrome, spina bifida, retardation are not now automatically candidates for the abortion knife. The public is beginning to see the value in these children and parents are deciding we're going to keep them. We're not going to abort them. Now these, you know, this isn't going to be in the newspaper. But these are statistics that come out of people that are researching them and finding out. What is going on? So, while we have not made the progress we had hoped, we should not feel guilty for lower results than desired. The enemy is vast. It's a Goliath against a boy. But David's faith is ours as well, and our strength is in God, not in ourselves. So we'll take any of the advances, any of the inroads, that have been made but there's another kind of guilt which is not so easily dismissed and that is the guilt of having actually participated in an abortion for which perhaps your conscience and the enemies of your soul will not let you be at peace or if not abortion certainly men don't have abortions that sin in your life that has so demoralized, so discouraged you that you just, you just cannot get over it. And men have those sins as well as women. So I want to talk to you about this morning about the whole subject that God has declared us in Christ, if we're believers, He has declared us not guilty. Before we get to that part of the message, however, I want to point out the giants of guilt, and they are numerous. We have one listed in our text here in 1 John 3, verse 20. It says, whenever our hearts condemn us. Why would our hearts condemn us? In American colloquialism, the heart is used to refer to the affections. The affections. For example, a defenseless woman is dragged out of her apartment by the hare into the street by her estranged boyfriend, where he proceeds to punch her and kick her in full view of onlookers, but no one calls 911. No one uh, comes to her aid. And the woman's family members arriving after the beating protest, you people have no heart. Meaning, where's your compassion? Where's your sympathy for a defenseless person being beaten to a pulp? And in this scenario, the word heart is used to refer to affections, sympathy. It's often how we use it in the American colloquialism. However, biblically, the word heart stands for the totality of a person. Affections, yes, but also one's thinking, one's will, one's choices and actions. And so in context, John has said that we need to love the brethren in practical ways by stepping in to help in time of need, and he lists some of those things. But even if we do love in these very practical ways, it's possible that our hearts will condemn us because we know we have acted with insincerity. Maybe we've acted with stinginess. That is we have given some token help instead of generous help. People do that all the time, you know. you're going into Kmart or one of the stores and there's somebody collecting money for a particular cause, cancer fund, uh, March or Dimes, something of that nature. And so they, you feel kind of obligated and you give a, a, a token gift. Well, Christians can do that in terms of helping people in need. And so their hearts condemn us. Or maybe we've acted out of duty and not real love for those that are hurting. So in this sense, the heart... Condemning us is the equivalent to a guilty conscience. English word conscience is a compound word consisting of the word con, meaning with, and science, meaning knowledge. So, conscience means to be knowledgeable. To know, as it were, right from wrong. To know whether you have done all that is right or have left things undone that should have been done. And it is the discrepancy between performance and knowledge which makes us feel guilty. We condemn ourselves for not living up to God's standard and we have no peace about it. And so the first giant of guilt is our own conscience. We do not always live up to what we know to be right. This would apply to having an abortion, but also to any other sin for which your conscience will not give you rest. There you are. You're locked into... Difference between what you knew and what you did. That's one giant of guilt. Another giant of guilt is Satan. Satan the accuser. He's a master of guilt. John our author wrote in the Revelation, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ For, here's the reason, for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Revelation 12, verse 10. And in context, he names this guy. He names, and let me read it for you. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth. Here's a giant of guilt. He's a master of guilt because of his accusations. Now sometimes his accusations, and we ought to realize this, they're founded. But at other times they're unfounded. As in the case of righteous Job, whom God characterized, there is no one on earth like him He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job 1, verse 8. We read that and we say, okay, that's it. One would think that with such a stellar commendation, by God Himself no less, one would think that Satan would not have a leg to stand on in laying guilt at the feet of Job. God says there's nothing like him. There's no one like him on the earth. He's righteous. He loves righteousness and hates evil. But (laughs) Satan did find what he considered to be a chink in Job's armor. Here it is. Satan speaking. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you... God, not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Job 1, verses 9 through 11. The accusation goes to motive. Satan is saying, Job isn't so righteous as you think, God. He serves you for money. You've made him the man with the Midas touch. He's successful in every endeavor. You've made him rich. I mean, (laughs) who wouldn't be willing to trade allegiance and fidelity to God for being the greatest man among all the people of the East. To quote your own words, God. Job one, verse three. Now I want you to see how cynical this is. How, can I say, how diabolical this is. Even when we do well, Even when we do well, as in the case here, Satan accuses us of ulterior and evil motives for doing well. We often carry about the burden of his accusation. He is a master of guilt. You find yourself analyzing, 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 Your motives. Now it's good to think, you know, was I right in my thinking? But are you obsessed with that? Do you put yourself through the ringer and I wonder if I, why did I, oh, I shouldn't, did I, oh. There are people like that all the time. They overanalyze. And Satan's right there saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sticking it to us you sure you're right in your motives? So he is a giant of guilt. He's a master of guilt. Thirdly, the world of unbelievers is a giant of guilt. Paul, speaking of his own experience as an apostle, says, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this point, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. First Corinthians 4, verse 13. Now this was in spite of his testimony, which was this. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relationship with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. See, it analyzes motives and and he says, I I know that we've we've done right by you guys. Then writing of all Christians, he goes on, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Romans 8, verse 33, 34. Now in that text, Paul is not, he is not suggesting that no one of the world brings just charges against us as believers. But his point is that they cannot bring charges that stick Charges that are incriminating because Christ has died and Christ intercedes on our behalf. It's not that we are guiltless, but that we are forgiven and exonerated on the merit of Jesus' payment. And this changes then the nature of the world's accusations. Peter told his people... In your heart set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against, get this now, against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. People of the world are masters of guilt. And it's kind of a self-preservation thing. They accuse believers of being hypocrites when their whole lives are full of hypocrisy. They twist our words to mean something evil. They malign our good intentions with their own evil motives. They slander our good behavior by wicked law. We bear the guilt their hatred of us produces, but it still bothers us. So we have these giants of guilt. We have our own conscience that bothers us. We have Satan there accusing us. And even when we do something good, he has something bad to say about our motives. And then we have the world who condemns us and slanders and twists and takes what is good and Puts a spin on it, at least from their viewpoint, so they they can feel good about the rampant hypocrisy that's in their own lives. Now, what's the biblical solution to all this guilt? Well, there is the master of the cleared conscience. There's these giants of guilt, but then there's the master, capital M, of the cleared conscience. Let's just work backward a little bit. So let's start here with the world. Firstly, Christ overcame the world. So you need to know that. Jesus taught his disciples, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. Paul tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Just think about that. Just just think about that truth. Okay, you got all this slander that's going on. You're getting attacked from the world. Is that going to separate you from the love of Christ? And then Paul begins this magungus list of things that we might have in our mind that might separate us. Shall trouble? Hardship? How about persecution? How about famine? How about nakedness or danger or sword? It is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how the world looks at us. No, says Paul, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Ooh, supernatural forces. Hmm. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future. How about that? We're all worried about what's going to happen to our country in the future. Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation. Well, wow, now that's pretty expansive, isn't it? None of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Peter chimes in, Christ died for our sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And then he talks about a symbolic baptism that now saves, and he explains that, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good, Conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to Him. First Peter 3:18 and following. They're not in charge. Christ is in charge. Jesus' payment for sin grants us a good conscience. In this text, verse 16 says, a clear conscience. 1 Peter 3, 16. Clear conscience towards God, though the world speaks maliciously against our good behavior and slanders us. Let me say it this way. The world's opinion of you doesn't count much with God. Just doesn't. You're all worried about that. What do they think? Who cares what they think? God doesn't care what they think. Let them say what they will. Let them dig up and throw your sins in your face. Let them vilify your motives. Let them malign the good that you do by speaking evil of it. Let them twist the truth and malign your intent, no matter. No matter. The resurrected Christ, your Savior, who died and was resurrected, now sits in glory with every authority and every power subject to Him. To Him. The world cannot win in this war of words. You are vindicated by Christ Himself. He declares to you, not guilty. Because in Him, payment for your sin has been made in full, and He has overcome the world, and so you, with Him, sit in the victor's seat. God doesn't want you to have a guilty conscience as a result of the world's accusations. Secondly, Christ defeated Satan, and He continues to foil him. He is the slanderer. He, he brings accusations against us. We are not as righteous in practice as Job was. We give Satan much fuel for his fire. Our behavior helps the devil condemn us with just accusations. This master of guilt has no problem in ferreting out our sin and exposing it. And it says that he stands before God and accuses the brethren day and night and even sleep. Never gets tired. Must we then suffer the guilt of his accusations? Is there no help here with this evil one's malicious intent? He means to see us cursed with him. He means to have us ruined in hell with him. He means to have our testimony ruined, our reputation shot, and our allegiance to Christ a mockery to the watching world. By the way, you are in the crosshairs of the evil one. Not your evil uh, neighbor next door. Not that evil person that works with you at work. You, the believer, are in the crosshairs of the evil one. You are the person he bugs. You are the person he goes after. He already has the other parties. Now then worry about them. In speaking with Zechariah the prophet, God sent an angel to explain various visions that the prophet had seen. In chapter 3, verse 1 and following, he describes one of these visions. Here it is. Then he showed me Joshua. Now this is not Joshua that led... um, The Israelites into the promised land after the death of Moses. This is a different Joshua. That's a common name, by the way. Uh, You you know what the name Joshua means? The Hebrew name? Anyone? Savior. Savior. It's Yeshua. Yeshua. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua. So, we're going to see here as I read. Satan has to say something to say about anyone who would be a savior. A savior. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing there before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone that I've set in front of Joshua. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Zechariah 3, verse 1 and following. Now this is quite revealing because this account shows Satan at the side of Joshua the high priest, ready and willing to accuse him, to discredit him, and to demonstrate that he had no right to be lecturing others on sin when he himself was guilty of so much. And to the devil's credit, verse 5 admits Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And we learn within context that the filthy clothes stands for his many, many sins. This is Joshua the high priest in Israel at this time. Whose responsibility it was to make sacrifices for the sin of the people. I must tell you, brethren, that this is something I struggle with as your pastor. I often think, how can I stand before my people and how can I stand before them and say anything about sin when my own life is so defiled with the same. Sin. Satan has a special hatred for prophets and preachers and ministers and missionaries and counselors of others. He knows as we know that we have feet of clay. His arrows are aimed at our chink in the armor. And he means to bring us down with the sense of guilt for our own sin. Maybe he will shame us into not preaching. Or so discredit our ministry as to use the people of God to silence our lips because they won't listen any longer. In many ways. This is what is going on in this third chapter of Zechariah. Joshua the high priest stands there dressed in filthy clothes, his sins are many. And Satan is there to suggest that Joshua be disqualified as a credible priest to intercede for the people. Joshua, you are guilty. And so he's dead in the water. His ship is sitting there like a sitting duck. With the flaming arrows of the evil one, he has no defense. He'll be shot full of holes and his ship will go down in flames. That's the intent. But just when all seems lost, verse 2 says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Brethren, (laughs) that's all we ministers are. We're just burning sticks snatched from the fire part of jerusalem not because we have wished it so but because god has chosen us to inhabit the city and as for our sins may i say for your sins your sins included god said to joshua see i have taken away your sins and i will put rich garments on And as the text reads on, it tells of one called the branch. You want to know who the branch is? Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. The branch that comes out of the root of Jesse. Jesse, David's father. In David's line, the kingly line, there comes another in the line called the branch stone from the builders rejected, being set before Joshua, symbols all of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom God pledges himself to remove the sins of this land in a single day. And he did that at Mount Calvary. Amen. Amen. That's the gospel. May I say that forgiven sins are forgotten sins. Atoned for sins are no more sins. No more sins cannot be used by Satan to vilify God's people with guilt. Christ Jesus, the branch, is the master who rebukes Satan by snatching us burning sticks from hell's fire and insulating us in the protection of his righteousness. Dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Wow. Satan is not someone we need to fear. This brings us then to where we began, the guilt giant of our own conscience. Mm. Believe it or not, this is a biggie. Verse 20 of our text, 1 John 3. Whenever our hearts condemn us, In some ways, the guilt of our own conscience is worse than that of the world or of Satan. I mean, we can readily dismiss the accusations of unbelievers and of Satan because we know they have a bias, an evil bias. But what we cannot escape, however, is the accusations of our own guilty conscience. Conscience, you remember, is an informed mind. It knows right from wrong. And so, if a person is born of God, it has been retaught to think and to act in a godly pattern, hitherto unknown and unpracticed. Yet, <laughs> struggle as we do with the mortification of sin, in our heart of hearts, we know that we're still full of failure. We know we are sinners still, we're still liable to disobedience. We know ourselves better than Satan. We know ourselves better than the world. And that can contribute greatly to a sense of guilt and shame. So what is John's solution for our own sense of failure? Verse 20. Whenever our hearts condemn us, and he's not suggesting that it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. You might almost say, when your heart does this to you, Whenever our hearts condemn us, we are to remember that God is greater than our hearts. And He knows everything. Let me put it this way. Whatever you think you know about yourself, God knows more. Whatever you think is known only to you in terms of your sin, God knows every sin you have ever committed including possible abortion, ladies, your pornography, men, a sin of drunkenness, pot, smoking, whatever, young people, (coughs) oscillating and playing with the world. God knows it all. Your conscience knows what you're up to, but God knows it too. Let me give you some scriptures on this. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Psalm 90 verse eight. Oh, I thought it was secret. No, it's not secret. God knows about it. Or how about this one? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23 verse 24. Where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna hide? How are you going to hide your sin from God? Or how about this one? Hebrews 4 verse 13. This is a clincher. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4 verse 13. That pretty well says it all, doesn't it? Nothing's hidden, everything exposed. Both sides, negative, positive. Now, the world hears that, and to the world, this is a frightening disclosure. Nothing's hidden, everything, God says, everything I ever did. Very frightening to the people of the world. But to us... The omniscience of God, His all-knowingness, is a blessing to us. It's a comfort to us. You say, how so? Because it means that not one sin, not one sin has escaped the perusal nor the cleansing of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. He who sees all has borne all. He who reveals all atones for all. And there is no sin left to condemn us. And that's exactly what Paul writes. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Romans 8, first three verses. That brings us to the joy of this whole subject. That is to say that we are exonerated before God. That means a number of things. Number one, a clear conscience. Look at verse 21 of our text. If our hearts do not condemn us, I just said, if our hearts condemn us. And now he says, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. How is it that our hearts would not condemn us when John just wrote, whenever our hearts condemn us? Well, he is moving progressively through his thoughts and he knows that there will be times when our conscience is not clear and we will be self-condemned. And then there are going to be other times when our hearts are going to say, "Hey, oh, hey, hey, pat you on the back, you did pretty good there," see? So he's considering: Are we there? Thereby exonerated because our hearts say, "Oh yeah, you did really good." Is that where we put our hope? The world puts its hope there, but not us. But his point is that even if our heart does condemn us, God is greater. Then our hearts, verse 20. He knows every black mark. He has erased every last one in the blood of His Son, leaving us with a clear conscience. Hebrews 9, verse 14 says, The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, He's the perfect sacrifice, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. He's saying we can serve God with a clear conscience now. Because Christ has dealt with the sin. A clear conscience means we're not in time warp. We're not locked into the guilt of some past horrific sin. Instead we receive from God, verse 22, anything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. That's new on the horizon, isn't it? Christians can do that which pleases God. The writer of Hebrews addresses this too, saying, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, how can we do that? By the blood of Jesus. That's how. Then let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10. Verse 9 and following, that's what Christ did for us. People with a guilty conscience are timid or reserved or altogether neglectful about their spiritual duties. About prayer, entering into the presence of God. They do not pray because they are guilt ridden with their sin. And if that's you, then you need to see that if you are in Christ, He has borne all the guilt of every sin you ever committed or any sin you will commit. Remember, He knows all. He is atoned for all. The conscience is therefore cleared in Christ. Secondly, what about an obedient heart? This is the second trait. Cleared conscience, first trait. Second, an obedient heart. A trait of a person exonerated before God. Look at verse 24. Those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. There it is. Verse 22 lists the two commands that you need to concern yourself with. Continue to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He commands us. Faith in Christ and love for God's people. That's a summation of the law. And we can do that in Christ. When a believer truly sees his or her sin, they may, may conclude that there isn't one service for Christ they could perform properly. But... They are defeated in that before they begin. But if you can see Christ as the master of the cleared conscience, you will see yourself as forgiven, as cleansed, and therefore a vessel fit for the master's use. Your prayer life will change and your service life will change. God has chosen you unto himself and nothing can change that. Jesus said it best. My sheep listen to my voice. They listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's the obedience. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. and No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. John 10, 27 through 30. That's how secure you are because of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the person who has yet to settle accounts with God, the message is this, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, notice the next phrase, not counting men's sins against them. What is he saying here? He's saying God is seeking sinners, but sinners aren't seeking God. But that's okay, because if God seeks you, you'll come. And He has committed to us, us preachers, us believers, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore... Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and following. In Christ, God was saying to the world, I won't count your sins against you if you'll come to Christ. This forgiveness on God's part for your sins is not leniency. God does not. He cannot look the other way with regard to sin. Instead, God can be forgiving of your sins and not count them against you because He deals with every last one of your sins in His Son Jesus who paid the ultimate price for sin at the cross. And if you will stop trying to make yourself righteous through good deeds if instead you will trust Jesus to make you righteous, your sins will be forgiven and they'll never be counted against you. Therefore there is now, notice the time reference, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 one. How glorious to be exonerated in and because of the work of Christ the Savior. So if you're carrying your guilt around with you today because of your past, something you've done, the burden of your sin like pilgrim that we're studying on Sunday night with the burden on his back you throw all of that at the foot of the cross and trust Christ to pick it up and deal with your sin which he has promised to do if you will trust Him and stop trusting your own alleged goodness, the condemnation will dissipate. It's gone. And God will bring you into His family and make you a new creature from the inside out. And that's the glory of the gospel. All you out there in internet land that are working real hard, any here in the auditorium today that is working real hard, To deal with your guilty conscience and the accusations of all of that. Got to stop it. Got to stop it. Time out right now. Stop it. Stop the working and trust the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Far better to trust God taking care of your problem than you trying to appease God. Lord, we just pray and thank you for the work of Christ. Whatever our sin, and and I'm sure we could could list our sins, they would be just as horrendous as Joshua the high priest standing there being accused of Satan. Not being worthy to lead the people, teach the people, or intercede for the people because of all of his sin. Come before God in that holy office. There was nothing holy about Joshua the high priest. There is nothing holy about us. And the service that we present to God, hoping that He will have a favorable smile upon us because we're so good. Isaiah said it best, that even our righteousnesses, even the good things that we do, appear in God's sight as filthy rags. Filthy rags. We're just like Joshua, that high priest, that Satan accused, being dressed in filthy garments. Our sin makes us filthy, but Christ takes it away. Lord, help us to stop working and start believing, start trusting in what you have already declared to be the only way of atonement. Thank you that whatever the horrendous nature of our sin. We don't have to keep living with it day in and day out, walking around with a guilty conscience. We can say Christ died for that sin. Christ has forgiven me for that sin. It will never raise its ugly head against me again. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.